answers are what Psalm 90 is about. The sense of the long judgment of God, the wrath of God which is going on and on and on beyond a lifetime. And therein lies the problem for us, for our life is short. And so our life seems to therefore be lacking meaning, lacking sense, because in the lifetime in which we live, we live in this great phase for the psalmist of the Babylonian captivity or something like that, where the judgment of God seems to be going forever, covering the whole of my lifetime, how short my life is for vanity you have created. It's, it's kind of like Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. Everything is empty, everything is nothingness, because the life I live is in the period of your wrath. Psalm 90 continues in that mode. Verse 1, it starts off with the everlasting God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains you were brought forth, or ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God was God before the mountains, before the earth was formed. God is God from everlasting and to everlasting. It's not that God is outside of time, that God is timeless. It's much more that God was before our time started and God will be there after our time has finished. There was when there was no world and God was there. And there will be after this world is destroyed and God will be there. God is from everlasting to everlasting, eternal. And not only is God eternally like this, but as the psalmist sees God, he's been our dwelling place. He's been our home. He's been our protection of his people of Israel. And he's been our dwelling place from generation to generation. So within this everlasting span of God has been the care and concern and the home of each generation of Israelites that we can go back to Abraham's day, you can continue on through David, you, you can go back to Moses' day, you can continue on through Isaiah. God, generation after generation, has been protecting and looking after his people. But yet, as Psalm 89, so this psalm is about God's wrath. This has surprised me a little because this is one of the favorite psalms of our community to sing at moments of great significance and importance. There are certain public psalms that if you sing, uh, people from a certain background will be able to join in, uh, the kind of private school background where you had to sing certain things at great occasions. So Psalm 23 is a hymn that people can sing or at least vaguely recognize. And uh, this one, Psalm 90, has that great hymn, uh, O God, Our God, uh, the great hymn which I've actually printed on the back, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Uh, another one like that is Abide With Me. There are just certain great hymns, and one of them is based on this, on this very psalm. But it's a surprising psalm to base a great public hymn on because it's really about the wrath of God. For all humanity is under judgment. A judgment that wipes out all humanity. For as man was created out of the dust of the earth and warned that if he sinned he would return to the dust of the earth, so now 
we have returned and are returning to the dust of the earth. All the children of man, verse 3, you see, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Uh, the word man there in the second occasion is, is Adam. Return, O children of Adam. We're all the children of Adam. And just as we were created like Adam, as Adam, as, so we've also been condemned and die as Adam. This was the warning at the beginning in creation. And this has been the pattern, not of life ever since, the pattern of death ever since. We live in the world of death. For us, it's the only world we've known. And so therefore, we think it's normal. But it's not normal. It's, it's like the child that is born inside a prison. The only world they know is the prison they're born inside. Therefore, they think it is normal to be dressed in kind of funny uniforms and have people poking guns at you and being locked up in different cages each night. They think that's normality because that's the only world they know. We've been born in the world of death. And therefore we assume that there is a certain normality about it until somebody close to us, to us die or until we're given a, a, a cancer sentence or something like that and then suddenly we feel the abnormality of it, the wrongness of it, the hurt of it, the, the, the not rightness of being in this world like this. This week Reg Gasnier died. Now, I presume there are people in this room, in the cathedral this day, who, who don't know that. Even if they did know it because they've read it in the newspaper, don't know what it means. And there are other people who are with us here for whom this is a significant moment in history because Reg Gasnier was actually important to us. It depends who we are. I, I won't have a show of hands here, but... Uh, even though I'm not a St George supporter, but have had the disadvantage in life of having married one, even I can acknowledge that he was one of the greatest rugby league players that we have seen in the second, you know, in the last, in my lifetime, 60 years of watching rugby league. I cannot think of any particular player who was quite as magic as Reg Gasnier was, and now he's died. Of course, it's all gone over the top because the news heading has one of the immortal dies. Well, the mortality of the immortal is really something quite odd, isn't it? If he's really one of the immortals, how come he's died? Because, well, the word immortal, which means doesn't die, has a second metaphoric meaning these days. That is, somebody who, who's, whose fame and fortune and impact is so great that it will go on. Reg manifestly wasn't immortal. He's died. And I, for one, am sad because as a child I watched him and was thrilled to see what he could do. So I'm sad. But yet the feats that he performed on the rugby league field for the wrong team they, they aren't really immortal feats. <laughs> it's just rugby league. Get a grip. It's just a game. It, it doesn't matter that much. And in fact, all we've got are little black and white film clips that don't make much sense because, well, the rest of the game is not recorded for us. It just shows us 
a boy, a, a young man running with a, 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 a ball under his arm and missing a couple of tackles. And it's hardly immortal. I mean, will it be remembered in the future? My suspicion it won't be. In fact, I think most of the people, well, I don't know. But my guess is most of the people in this cathedral at this moment don't remember seeing him at all. Uh, either because you were too young or because you were so disinterested in rugby league. Either way, his impact on your life has been zero. And I think if we come back in 50 years' time, there won't be anybody who'll be here who's actually seen him. And the only immortality he has is that there's a statue of him out at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And that immortality is visited by birds that sit upon him and do their business. So it's not much of an immortality, really, just to have that. His fame and his name will go longer than most of us, but yet immortal is, frankly, a significant overstatement. It's a public relations sell of how important rugby league is. And when rugby league ceases to be important, then his fame disappears totally. We need to get a clearer perspective. God is immortal. To him, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Our meagre lives are a small part of his storyline. As are the thousands of, upon thousands of people, the millions of people who have gone before us. How far back can you trace your family tree? Most Australians can trace it back to when the first of our ancestors came to Australia. And then there's a kind of full stop at that point because most of the people who came here came from insignificance. Uh, came for reasons that would not give you much of a record in Europe or wherever it is they've come from. I mean, uh, my Danish family came to escape being conscripted into Bismarck's army. They were peasants. Who keeps historical record of peasants? And they've got the most common Danish name, Jensen. And so if you went back there and looked up the phone book, yes, I've got lots of relatives. But I have no idea who they are, where they, that's where the history stops. And for most of it, it is a little bit like that. We know where it, we came from, but that's about as far as it goes. But some of us can go back for several hundred years back. I've met a man who's got a family tree lineage that goes back to 1066, which is really impressive compared to where I'm at, to be able to trace your family back to the Norman Conquest. Unless you're a Saxon, then it's not impressive. But here is, you know, because not impressive, it's only 1,000 years. In the thousands upon thousands of years that humans have been here, his actual family goes back for thousands and thousands of years. All he can do is trace the last thousand. And then it's a little iffy as to whether he's got it accurate or not. Our families have existed since creation. God was before your family and he's seen all the family that has developed down to you and every one of the generations of lives he has been supervising down to you.
down to the latest generation of you and your children and your grandchildren. And so in verses 5 and 6, there are three images used of man's impermanence from God's perspective. The people are swept away as like a flood. The people are like a dream. They just come and they go. The people are like the grass. It grows up in the dew in the morning and then in the heat of the day gets burnt off again. Humans come and go. Generations come and go. People come and go in an endless procession of going nowhere. And why? Well, all this is because of God's anger, verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. It's because of his anger or wrath that we come to the end of our life in death. For God knows and sees human sinfulness. Even, verse 8 over the page, our hidden sinfulness are known to him. Even the ones that we've forgotten, even the ones that we've rationalized away as not being actually sinful. All human sinfulness is known to God, and God is angry with sinfulness. God's wrath, God's anger is not temperamentalism. He didn't get out of the wrong side of the bed. He, his sciatica is not playing up on him. He's, he, his neighbor's dog didn't keep him awake all night. The kinds of silly reasons for which we do not control our temper. Not like God. God's anger is just and righteous. Giving people what they, what we deserve. For our sins must be paid for. And our sins anger God. As we turn our back on him and as we hurt each other and as we don't care for the world that he's given to us to look after, so he is angry with what we do. And so, as he warned Adam, we experience the limits of life. Verse 7, we are brought to the end by your anger. Over the page, verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. And so we come to the the famous passage of verse 10, which in the old English version was, well, it was so colourful. Three, the days of your years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years. It's so much nicer than the kind of prosaic 70 and 80 that they've got there. It means exactly the same thing, but if you've got poetry, why do it in a prosaic fashion? Threescore and ten. It's a nice way of saying it, really, isn't it? It means precisely the same thing, but it just sounds better, doesn't it? Three score and ten. But the meaning is not meant to be poetic and beautiful. The meaning is actually realistic and fairly dreary. For we do not live on forever. We only have a few years in which to live. And what is more, the years in which we live are marked in verse 10 as, all, as toil and trouble and as flying past quickly, soon flying away. Yet their span but toil and trouble and they're soon God, gone and we fly away. Now I, I'm fairly close to approaching my three score and ten. I've done the three score some years ago. And I'm getting towards the end of the ten as well. 
And let me assure you, in my experience, it's extraordinarily quick. I don't know where the years have gone. I don't understand how I got here so fast. One day I was watching Rez Gaznia play football. Next day I'm here talking to you about his death. What's happened in between? I'm not altogether sure. Somebody write my biography. They could tell me what I did through that course of period of time because it has all just ripped along so quickly. I think of the old grandfather figures of my life gently snoozing in front of TV and then I wake up to the fact that the grandfather in front of the TV these days is me. How did I get there? It seems an extraordinary thing. And the years of our life, they're not easy. There's war. Some of my friends died in Vietnam and then there's, there's sickness and there's hardship and, and, and hard work and then there's times of loneliness and there's the difficulties of young children and, and, and then certain relatives die and there's grieving and there's mourning. It's not as if I look back and say it was all a slippery slide of sheer pleasure but yet as it says there in verse 9 we bring our years to an end with a sigh. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang but a whimper, as T.S. Eliot would put it. It just goes with a sigh. The last friend that I stood sat with who died, that's exactly right. It was precisely that. He sighed and didn't take another breath in. That was the end. So... We need to learn to fear and wisdom. Verse 11, you see. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the, f the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We need to grasp the power of God's anger on sin. And most people don't see the connection between sin and death and between God's anger and death. But we need to understand that God's anger with sin is what leads us to have death as the normality of our experience. People say silly things at funerals about how good the person was and how happy God will be to have them join them in heaven. They will not face how dreadful it is that a human dies, how the sin of the world has consumed another one. They don't learn to fear God. And without the fear of God, there is no wisdom, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we ask God to teach us to number our days, to recognize that we are not the immortals, to recognize that we are sinners living for a short while under the wrath of God so that we can gain the perspective of eternity and therefore understand how to live wisely in temporality. To know how to live wisely here, you have to understand what the big picture is, the eternal picture is. So the psalm finishes with the prayer, or should I say a series of prayers, from verse 13 through to 17. They are requests, but they're expressed as commands, because it's one of the characteristics of biblical prayer, that we don't pussyfoot around God, but plainly make our requests known to him. 
It's one of the characteristics of modern prayer that we're too timid to let him know what we actually want. So the psalmist starts with return, verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. God, in verse 3, has returned man to the dust. Now the psalmist asks God to return to us. He's, He's asking that you return not in wrath, but in mercy. Return and have pity upon your servants. As in Psalm 89, for too long God has been punishing us. Come back. Return back to us. Bring us mercy. Secondly, satisfy us in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is what he wants. No more wrath, no more anger, but mercy, forgiveness, pardon. What he wants is God's steadfast love, God's grace. Here is the desire of the gospel, the longing of the heart that knows it has sinned against God, that knows its death is part of God's punishment, that knows that 70 or 80 years are not enough, that knows this world is not right but needs God. Here is the desire for the gospel. But it finds its answer only in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the very expression of God's steadfast love. For by his loving death and resurrection, we have this mercy that he's asking for in the previous verse. He, we have this life, for it's by his mercy that he rises to de- from death to bring us life. And the life that the Lord Jesus brings us is not only life, but it's eternal life. It's not dying life. It's a different kind of life. Here is the desire for the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1. See, the Lord Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For when he comes, we can be satisfied with joy and gladness. When the bridegroom comes, Jesus says, that is the time for rejoicing. When he's taken away, you mourn, but when he comes, you rejoice. Which is why the next request is, make us glad. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. Christianity is a religion of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. For we're not simply living under the toil and trouble for a few short decades before returning to the meaninglessness of dust. That's the world. The gospel, we're living for the Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered death and risen to pour out his spirit upon us to bring us to new birth, new life, resurrection life, eternal life. And so that our work for the Lord will never be in vain in this toil and troublesome world. We have meaningful existence because of eternity that we're heading to. At the work of the Lord, your work, as he calls it in verse 16, is what he wants seen, not only by him, but also by his children. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. 
He knows God's sovereign power. He never doubts that. But he wants God's servants to see it and their children to know it. In the troublesome, toilsome world, it's more than possible to lose sight of the power of God and the works of the Lord. But in the new age of God's kingdom, he wants God's works and powers to stand as testimony to future generations of God's steadfast love. And not only the Lord's work, but also our work in the last verse. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. For those who do the work of the Lord, their work will stand beyond death and will be established forever. 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter, 58 to so verses, about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and about our resurrection. And it ends by pointing out that those who do the work of the Lord, their work will not be in vain, for it stands in eternity in the resurrection. Whereas those who eat and drink, for tomorrow they die, their life indeed is vanity and futility. But those of us who build with gold and silver and precious stone, even when the fire comes, it stands firm, only purified. It will stand on the last day, for we're building for eternity. Psalm 90, you see, recasts our temporal life in the light of immortality, of everlastingness, of God. And so has given rise to this wonderful hymn of of, uh, of, of Isaac Newton. Of Isaac, I've got terrible trouble. I want to say Isaac Newton. What's his name? Isaac Watts. Thank you. Not Newton. He's a physicist. Of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote us a, a, a hymn on nearly every one of the Psalms. Most of them have been lost. But this is the one he wrote on this psalm. It's on the back of your outline, you'll see it. And they're paraphrases, Christian paraphrases of the psalms. O God, our God, in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy past and our eternal home. Well, that's the first couple of verses. Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thy arm alone and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. Down to verse 5, a thousand ages in thy sight are like the evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. 7. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its suns away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Down to verse 9 again, our God, our help in ages help. Our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while life shall last and our eternal hope. That's the hymn that's sung. But the three verses in italics are omitted. And that's why it never actually works for me as a paraphrase of this psalm. For look at the three verses that everybody omits that Isaac Watts wrote. Verse 4. Thy word commands our flesh to dust. Return, ye sons of men. All nations rose from earth at first and turned to earth again. And verse 6. 
The busy tribes of flesh and blood, with all their lives and cares, are carried downward by the flood and lost in following years. And verse 8, Like flowery fields the nations stand, pleased with the morning light. The flowers beneath the mower's hands lie withering ere it's night. We can sing this song publicly because we remove the wrath of God out of the psalm. But if you remove the wrath of God out of the psalm, the meaning of the psalm is completely lost. It is so typical of public religion. The gospel is wonderful news of mercy, forgiveness, kindness, eternal life. But if you don't understand sin and judgment, you don't appreciate how wonderful salvation is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, and for the fact that you did return to bring us joy, to bring us forgiveness and mercy and kindness, to bring us the knowledge of eternal life and the experience of that life. We thank and praise you, Father, for this, and that in the light of this we can know of our mortality and of our immortality in you. That you have abolished death and brought immortality to life. Enables us, Father, to have work that is meaningful, your work, and that lasts beyond this mere world, and that we're not governed by the toils and troubles and the speed of losing life. For we live for you and work for you, and see your works, and have our works established, not only in this lifetime, but in the age to come. So we thank you, Father, that you heard the psalmist's plea and sent your Son for our salvation. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Victor.